We start this morning with, with, uh, with an artist, uh, Jackie Irvine, and we finish with a conversation with two artists that I not only admire, but I've, I've worked with on a regular basis. Uh, I'll ask one to introduce the other, but uh, Annabelle Common is one of Ireland's leading directors, uh, and indeed she's about to direct uh, a production of Tom Murphy's The Wake as a part of a Waking the Nation season. Uh, she, with uh, Marco Rowe, collaborated and worked on Mark's version of Hedda Gabler, which we did uh, last season. Uh, and of course, Annabelle has also directed another Tom Murphy play called The House and Pygmalion and several others for the Abbey Theatre. Um, Mark Rowe uh, is an extraordinary artist, an extraordinary playwright. Uh, I'm privileged to have worked with him uh, several times, uh, um, particularly on Terminus and on Feud Evil Days, both extraordinary productions that, that really, uh, in terms of his use of language, his use of imagination, his use of Faustian packs and so forth is, uh, uh, is one of our critical and most important uh, playwrights. So I'd like to introduce uh, Mark Rowe in conversation with Annabelle Common. Hello. Thank you for being here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, I know you've just come from rehearsing Juno and the Peacock uh, at the gate, and you're in the thick of that. Um, but I suppose I wanted to ask you, um, when you work, and I suppose I mean by that, when you write, but also when you direct, um, do you or can you assess uh, the environment in which you are working? Uh, you mean the environment around me that I'm living in or the environment that I'm going to go into when I... Uh, the, the environment you live in? Society yeah, really uh, around you? Are yeah, you aware of well, it or conscious yeah, of it? I su yeah, I suppose that uh, it's never the primary goal to kind of reflect the actual things that are surrounding you day by day. Uh, obviously, there's a huge amount of your, uh, your existence that you use in the creative process, particularly in, in, in writing. But... Uh, it, I think that that stuff all kind of filters in subconsciously. Uh, I think usually, you know, people say write what you know. So I think usually when you're coming up with a story or in the middle of telling a story, you tend to uh, you you know you open your mind and allow you, that that creative process is about intuitively letting the the first things that come to mind come to mind and take. And, and, and allow them to flow. So I think usually the first things that come to mind are the things that you that you see around you or things that have happened to you. Uh, although that's not always the case and often like the best, you know, if you've got an option, you might have an option of something that happened to you, something that you've seen, something that you've noted or something that you literally made up sure. in the moment. You pick the best one and you go yeah, with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it's interesting because looking back at your earlier work, uh, first of all, um, and I'm thinking of, say, uh, Howie the Rookie and, and Crestfall, and I suppose even more recently, Terminus, um, the landscapes of these plays um, are often very brutal, uh, on-the-edge landscapes. Do you know, I suppose, looking back at that work, less so Terminus, but maybe Crestfall and Howie, which are earlier plays, do you see them uh, as reflective of where you were personally at that time? Uh yeah, I think so, definitely. I think and why you, is such a brutal landscape? Uh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people read a lot of stuff into the fact that I'm from Tala and I grew up in, you know, a, a supposedly very uh, tough environment. And I suppose there were tough parts of it, but my experience wasn't 
that immersive and that in that kind of sides of things side of things and I, I suppose people like to look at a particular narrative where they say oh he's from here and he writes about this so obviously something happened here to make this this the thing that he was interested in writing about but but my upbringing was pretty dull to be honest uh, and um uh, I, there was that stuff going on, but you would spend your time kind of avoiding it. Maybe, maybe that sets something emotion in time uh, in mind about the fear of something. Not to say a lot of artists write what they're about the things that they're deep down most most afraid of. So maybe that's part of it. But also, you know, a huge influence on an artist is the art that they're surrounded by. And I suppose in my in my younger days and in my teen years, and it was it was th that interest in that in that more kind of baroque, violent slightly, well, quite heightened in some of the plays, actually, landscapes, was born out of um, just the work I loved, you know, novelists I loved and movies I loved and stuff like that. And I think uh, the thing that roots it then in society, in, not in society, but in, 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 in your immediate society and your immediate environment is the fact that you have to set it somewhere. So you've got all these events in your head and these stories and these relationships, but you've got to set them somewhere. And I guess the Places I knew better than anywhere else were the, pla were the places I lived. So you've got that kind of geography, which is which you know some of the plays I've been actually very uh, faithful to in in terms of you know m mapping out terrain and stuff. But I think anything in terms of narrative or event is 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 apart from that. It didn't come from that. It came from my own imagination and my own interests in terms of the work that had inspired me. Yeah, and within um, I suppose giving a context to to those landscapes and, and your influences there um it seems and which has always drawn me to your work as well that there's almost like and i use this in a very broad sense like a spiritual strivance or reach where characters are reaching for a human connection in in some shape or form almost despite themselves uh, or or their the, the, the worlds in which they live in. And I suppose, do you, do you believe in goodness of human nature? Does that interest you, the strivance <coughs> of it? Because they seem to be constantly battling in that way against yeah. circumstances. Yeah. I mean, when I started out, my, my, I think most people, when they, when they start out, the, your one goal is to impress people. You kind of want to... And, 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 and so with a lot of the more spectacular stuff, you're, 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 you're trying to say, look at what I can do, look at what I can create in words, what, look at what... And you, you, know, you learn very quickly that you're, a, you're easily able to do that, but it's not, the, the, it's, it's not really what you're aiming for. And you find as you write stories and as you, as you, as you put things together, I, the most important thing becomes finding the shape of the, the work of art you're trying to create, if you like, and you don't know it, you don't know what it's going to be. So where the, where the kickstart might be with uh, like a, a particularly clever incident or a violent moment or something that kind of gets your, your juices going, you find at a certain point in the process, hopefully, it doesn't always happen, but hopefully a shape, a pattern starts, starts to kind of take shape and the, the piece begins to tell you what it wants you to do. And I know a lot of writers say this and it kind of sounds a bit vague and, and mystical in a way. And it, and it's a, it is a little bit vague and mystical, but it is a little bit true as well. And I think following, I mean, it's not magic, it's your intuition, I suppose. You're, you're starting to feel a certain kind of shape. And then often I find that you you as you're coming to the end of a story and you're coming to a sort of resolution, you feel that it's not enough just to say, and then I went home, the end. You, something kind of has to happen that's operating on a much deeper level. And I suppose, but, but, 
and it, and then it sounds like you have to, what I'm what I'm saying sounds like you have to start digging and finding something that's an extra element to put into your play. There's not enough depth in this, so take some depth and put it in. But usually you've left lots of clues for yourself anyway, and it's just a matter of teasing out things that are already there and taking out things that don't quite belong in that pattern. And then you have a play that has a kind of a just a, a, a nice shape to it. Um, your 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 comment about or your question about um, uh, believing in goodness and believing in I don't know redemption or people changing or people is is um, interesting because we spoke about this before and, and as I speak now, <coughs> excuse me, um, I find that. Uh, you know, I, I, I would have a much more, a slightly more pessimistic view on life and human nature. And I think change comes very rarely in people. And I think people generally stay the same. Now, if people are changing in my work, maybe that's a hope for that. Or that's a, that's a you know, despite my slight pessimism about that, that's a hope that that's possible in, in people or in me or whatever. Uh, but in fact, the idea that I may be returning to that often uh, is a mystery, is a slight mystery to me. That's one I can't say that there's any thought behind or that there's any, you know, it, it, it happens by itself, you know, and those are the patterns I suppose we see in artists' work where we say, oh look, he's always dealing with that, or she's always dealing with that. But I think at the time you don't have any plan to, to do that over and over. It's just something that, it's a concern that comes out by itself. Because um, I suppose uh, as an idea, but I think it has various forms, the idea of fate, seems to exist in, in some of your plays at least. And, um, and it seems that people seem to be struggling against their fate. Um, and I suppose I, I would love you to talk a little bit about uh, your ideas of fate um, or how you're using that as an idea artistically. Yeah. But it also seems so much of the plays are struggling, you know, characters are really struggling uh, struggling against all the odds. And, and yet I'd say your plays, as you would say yourself there, seem you would, you come across as an optimist, despite the fact that the play has yeah. been the characters have been struggling throughout. Um, but can you expand a little bit on your idea of fate uh, artistically? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fate. I suppose F A T E. Yeah. fate. I mean, yeah, yeah so I, 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 I. Yeah, no, no, it's not you. It's my understanding. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not how you speak, Annabelle. So I, well, it's, it's my hearing actually. Yeah. Um, I yeah, fate. Uh, I. I can answer this with confidence because I, I, I've observed it in myself, the idea that one thing that uh, uh, terrifies me about life is, is the element of chance and bad luck and the fact that no matter how we live our lives and no matter how healthy we are and how well we look after ourselves and morally however strong we are, spiritually however strong we are, we, none of us are immune to disaster. So I think most of the plays have an element of within the, the the carefully crafted construct of kind of A to B to C in the narrative. I always, I, I'm gonna, I was gonna say I, I always like to, but again, it's never really a choice. It usually just happens in the process that an element of chance comes in and sends things uh, swerving in another direction. And I know, I know that's a preoccupation to work because it's kind of a bit of a preoccupation in my life as well. And then the idea that fate as a, I don't believe in fate, as, a, as, as you know, that certain things are destined for us. I think fate only exists in, in retrospect, you know, when you look back at stuff and say that was only destined, that, that was always destined to happen, and it's easy to say that because it's happened, you know what I mean? But who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. 
But because um, it feels sometimes, like I'm just trying to think of an example that almost despite characteristics that we hold within ourselves that can compound the idea of fate. Do you know what I mean? Because we, we create our own fate, so to speak. And yet there seems to be moments where I can change. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels very hard one in your place and yet it seems to exist. Absolutely, but I think that's that's assuming that you don't get knocked down tomorrow or yeah. something something out of the blue doesn't happen. You yeah. know what I mean? But I think also the idea of fate I think is fascinating in that slightly to contradict what I said earlier, if time is a line that exists even into the future that we haven't lived yet. Sort of that odd, odd idea that in a week's time something disastrous could happen to me that's already planned, which kind of means that somebody knows about it and I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's that idea that, God, something could happen to me next week and yeah. that knowledge is already there, you know, is, is kind of, well, it's not terrifying, it's interesting, it's interesting, yeah. Can I ask you just about um, our few and evil days and uh, stylistically, um, it seems, uh, first of all, it's, it's a family play really, isn't it? And, uh, and there's dialogue in the play as opposed to monologues and direct audience address. Um, but it seems the language is, is almost uh, ascetic, uh, very pared back. Um, words take on huge multi-meanings at times and truncated language, which is, I suppose, different the style to the more rhythmic um, fuller language as some of your earlier plays yes. uh, suggest. Um, and yet what I, I felt they have in common but in different ways is this coming back to the notion of compartmentalization where people um, compartmentalize parts of their lives, especially in our few and evil days. You know, I suppose in a very literal way in the monologues, people stand in isolation on stage in some ways and, and they try to, as they relate their story, shape their stories. But um, in our few and evil days, it seems, because it's happening and unfolding with, uh, in the present in some ways dramatically, it seems though uh, that they live very compartmentalized lives um, and things that have happened to them that they kind of put aside. And, and that, do you see society or the way we live in that way where, where we can be very different selves? Um, well, yeah, I mean, constantly. absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just the way things are. It's a necessity for, for living and, and having relationships with other people and communicating with other people. And we're never the same person with one person as with, as, as with another. And in order to keep like if we talk about the idea of family or close loving relationships, it's necessary to keep, again, this is my, only my own opinion, so I'm not going to, you know, laying down the law on this, but it's necessary to keep parts of yourself to yourself, depending on who you're with, because to give up all of yourself, uh, you know, I guess relationships are a, are a, are a tango, are a, you know, are a communication where you need to pull back on some things and move forward on other things, depending on what the other person needs and what you need. And if we're all putting the truth out all the time, that can only lead to disaster. You know, we know truth-telling can be very hurtful, and we know that there are certain things people are better off not knowing. So I guess with something like Our Few and Evil Days, what was interesting for me was to have a family keeping major secrets from each other, but only... Uh, with a view to protecting the other people. They were, you know, the reasons weren't for, these secrets weren't held for selfish reasons or for fear of getting caught for something. They were, they were, they, it was revealed that these secrets were revealed to be protective secrets, secrets that were kept out of love in order to keep uh, their relationship constant. Um, and um, 
it also seems to, for me anyway, resonate because it seems to be quite a contemporary, uh, or maybe this is my take on it anyway, just a, quite a contemporary uh, reflection uh, of, of society that I think we can exist. And I think because there's so many outlets in which to exist, I think someone, a speaker earlier was talking about on Facebook that a lot of the um, profiles, 60% are made up, apparently. Um, and just that notion that uh, that we can live very different existences because there are more platforms in which to exist as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I, it seems like it, it, sometimes those twain never actually have to meet in some ways. And uh, I suppose I was going on to the idea of how people reconcile themselves sometimes with the different various selves that exist, um, which I think kind of all came to the fore then in our few and evil days. When it's, yeah, it's, but I mean, you know, I remember, you know, when you're a kid, you course with your kid, with your friends. You don't course in front of your folks. I mean, those those kind of boundaries in terms of how you behave are constantly. They're not shifting, but you're constantly adapting yourself to them. You know, if you're with people you're familiar with, you can behave as yourself. If you go into a new girlfriend's house to meet their parents, you're very well behaved. You're very aware of how you speak. You might enunciate more. So all those kind of things are are, are necessities of, of of kind of how we survive. Um, the idea of the construct of the person. I, I mean, it's a thing that's ever evolving, and it's a thing that's we're ever evolving with in order to in order to uh, make it work for us and, and decide where we stand on 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 any like variants of that. You know, but. I think when it comes down to um, when it comes down to two people in a room, it's two people in a room. You know what I mean? And there's no there's no Facebook, and I, I suppose that's what drama is. It's 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 a it has to be about immediate relationships rather. Well, it's not that it has to be. I'm sure you can write a, a many kind of brilliant and clever and sophisticated plays about the idea of of for example social media or those different elements of 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 how we relate, but I guess my my uh, interest lies within a, a, a much more um, intimate kind of uh, relationship, yeah. Can I ask you just, because uh, it's just going back to that idea in, in terms of your monologue plays, how characters do look to shape through, by speaking, they begin to put a shape on what has happened to them in their past. Um, so I'm making a tenuous link here, but uh, do you have a shape yourself to uh, have an impulse to shape your own history as a writer, either uh, in sense of your understanding of your society or your own body of work? Uh, again, that's that's um, it. Kind of only exists in retrospect, doesn't it? You see a kind of you like. I talk to a lot of writers, young writers, people up and coming, who, anyone who wants to, some advice, I'm always happy to kind of talk to people. And you're talking from the point of view of somebody with a lot of experience, but you're not talking from the point of view of somebody who knows what he's doing, because you, you as you constantly move forward, each new thing is a new challenge. So if you look back at what you've left behind, you can see there's some good pieces of work there and people kind of feel that that equals, you know where you're going, you know, you know, you know what your thing is. And, and for somebody who's like 20 years old and wanting to become a writer or whatever, that can kind of look amazing. Do you know what I mean? But each step of that, each step of that journey that you've already had was a leap into the dark with your eyes closed and your fingers crossed and the hope that something would come out of it. Also, your legacy, your 
legacy, your, your, the, the narrative of your work. I have a bunch of plays in the drawer. I have a bunch of plays that I spent long, long, long periods of time that I had to abandon. You also have your failures. And there's, there's always that instinct in us, isn't there, to, to, um, to put a narrative onto our lives. And even with your failures, to say, I failed here so I could succeed here and I could learn this from this. But it doesn't work that way. I failed here because I don't know why. I just failed. It didn't happen, you know? Um, and so... Um, that idea of I, I I'm kind of anti the idea of 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 narrating your life and and having people talk give a biog about you or whatever because because I don't believe that it's again it is it is an imposed shape it's not the actual shape and also you're seeing I mean you're seeing a list of six or seven plays but you're not seeing every other moment of an individual's existence as well which might be full of failures and successes and losses and so I think. Um, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, except for the fact that maybe that ties in somehow to that uh, that element of chance that happens in the plays as well. That idea that nothing is as shaped as we think it is, or as or as or as written in stone as we think it is. There's always the the element of disaster, you know. And Back it, to the element of disaster. Um, and and it seems then from what you're saying as well that you don't take the burden of of things that have gone before you, you know, plays that haven't come to fruition or that you're able to kind of put that aside and just think about moving forward. Yeah, well, you you always lament the, the waste of time. You know, I've spent, you know, if you spend nine months on a play that ends up having to go in the drawer, you never finish the play, you never got paid for the play. It's nine, it's literally, well, yeah, it is. It's Again, it's, it's nine months wasted and you tell yourself, oh, well, you know, I got a lot of experience in the, got to practice dialogue and whatever, but it's called comfort, you know, you didn't get anything out of it. And there's that thing that I think who's talking, Gary Hines was talking about on the radio recently about the, actually, it, it was somebody else who said it, but Gary, uh, the idea of a play not being, uh, not existing until it's put on. And it is, there is always that thing with every single thing you do that it may not be good enough. It may not be, it may not be good enough for you to want to put out there, you know. Uh, can I ask you then, um, in terms of the work that does get put out there and it does get produced, um, do you consider, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but are you consciously thinking about the impact that your work has on an audience um, in terms of what you might want to leave them with? Uh, or, or, or is that dictated purely by the piece of work itself? Yeah. The, the second one, I think, um, I, it's very hard to plan exactly what kind of an effect something will have on people. You know what I mean? It's, it's in a way, you know, you know yourself, it's kind of what previews are for, you, where you can put it in front of an audience and go, oh, it works that way, it doesn't work that way. I thought in the rehearsal room that this would have this impact, but, and yet they're, they're responding to it in different ways. You've got to either tweak the work slightly or kind of leave it the way it is and just be happy with, with, with the kind of reaction you're getting. Um, it, it's a tough one. Uh, it, it might sound like a, a bit of a cop-out, but I, when I write, I work and work and work and work a play before. I'm not someone who likes kind of doing a play. I've done it, but I don't like it. Doing a play that's kind of three quarters of the way there and then showing it to people and saying, what should I do next? I prefer to kind of bang my head against the wall and go over and over until I feel it's absolutely perfect and then you show it to people and then they 
tell you it's not. Do you know what I mean? But at least you've got yourself to the point where this this is absolutely and, and I think that's for me and, and then you 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 know you, you bring it into rehearsal or whatever and you rehearse it until you feel it's absolutely perfect. And what you're striving for is for it to be perfect rather than what kind of an effect it's having on an audience. I mean obviously it has to make sense, obviously it has to have a narrative, obviously it can't be boring. Uh, but I kind of feel it would be uh, slightly arrogant to assume that I could affect an audience emotionally in a certain way or or, or or teach them something or anything like that. I kind of, for me, the work, if, if I can make the work as perfect as it can be, then it will have whatever effect it's going to have. And, you know, sometimes if you make a work perfect, it's not in, it's not the right work for the time that it's in, but you kind of feel that you might... You, I mean, I've done it. Where you do a piece of work where you, which you feel is 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 really, really, really strong, and it's not well received. And when you've when you've worked it to the point where you believe in it so strongly, you can kind of deal with that and say, "I still have belief in the piece." You don't doubt the piece. You don't say, "Well, people didn't like it," which means it's crap. No, I got it to the point, and I still feel it's a strong, despite negative opinion, as I ever thought it was. You know, and I think that's a very it keeps you strong in a way because I think the biggest thing, and in fact, I'm, I know I'm going on a bit here, but, but um, the worst thing is to once you start trying to please expectations and and, and things that people want, doesn't that that once you start, you can't stop that. Do you know what I mean? If I'm going to make you happy, I may as well make you happy and you happy. And then where does the vision go? You know. So the only way to actually, for good or bad, the only way to maintain the consistency is is just just to make that the focus and not that the focus. Which is, which is not to say I have any kind of bad relationship with audience. I mean, audience are, and I love it when they like to work. I hate it when they don't. Well, I thought on that note, maybe we could ask, uh, maybe take three questions from the audience. So, um, and maybe we get, if we get the questions first, and then you can answer all three in a row, oh, might be easy. Okay. Does anyone have any questions there? Yeah. Is there one over there? Oh, sorry, there's a gentleman down there. Yeah, there's a huge formal shift from Terminus to our few and evil days, which might look like a return to more conventional form, which I don't think you'd ever occupied anyway. So what's, what was your thinking there, or did, would, did it just happen? Uh, sometimes, you know, the subject dictates the form. So I wanted to tell a story that was about a family that was about, you say, traditional forms. It's, a, it's, it's actually a very traditional play. It's about buried secrets, and it's, you know, six scenes in in consecutive order. What's the word? Uh, chronological. Chronological, yeah, yeah. Um, and all that kind of stuff. So it is a very a traditional form, but I didn't set out to write a, a play in the traditional form. I set out to write a play about some, a child and a family and those kind of relationships, and I felt that uh, the monologue form would have been the wrong way to go about it. I mean, there's, there's the other option of, I suppose, writing for screen drama, television, or, or film, but it felt that sense of kind of claustrophobia and that, that sense of a world of kind of pain happening between four walls felt felt very much felt very much that theatre was the place for a conventional uh, proscenium arch. I mean, we even put a ceiling on our set because we just wanted to very much have that feeling of looking into someone's life. But the formal shift is a... Uh, I genuinely, you know, because you, again, you're looking at the narrative. You're looking... I don't mean you. I mean, one is looking at the narrative and saying, oh, so the monologues and then the more realist play. 
I genuinely don't know what I'm going to write next. It might be a monologue, it might be a realist play, it depends upon the subject. So, and yet you still feel that slight pressure that, oh, that's my journey now. So now I have to continue for a while with those types of plays before I go into, because that's the story that my past is telling. But of course, there's no such thing. Thank you. Anyone else? Um, my question would be, uh, it's more about writing technique and then w when, when you decide on whether it's going to be monologue or not, and then uh, it seems uh, probably a bit of a simplistic question in some ways, but how do you know when to flesh out certain parts of your plays and then leave other b bits not as... Uh, do you know what I'm trying to yeah. ask you? You're, you're talking about specifically the monologues, really, are you? No, it, it, can, be, it can be uh, between two characters as well. Yeah. Um, it's a good one. It's a good one, but it's a tough one. Um, uh, you just again, I'm going to contradict myself and say it's nice to have people who are close to you who can read your work because sometimes you need other people to tell you. I think um, I said this a million times, so anyone who's heard me say this before, forgive me for repeating myself. I think, and it's a cliche. So on top of that, but uh, writing is rewriting and. The advice I always give to writers is learn to love rewriting. Learn to make rewriting the, the very raison d'etre for writing. You sit down. I've worked on stuff where I've said I'm going to get 10 drafts done in two weeks because it's not about trying to squeeze stuff into, into shape and it's not about, oh, uh, each new draft I do is this huge mountain I had to climb. No, the mountain is the two weeks. The mountain is the deadline you've kind of given yourself. And if you get into loving that, you write and you rewrite and you read, and each time you come back to read it, you see it more clearly and you see what's missing more clearly and what's there more clearly, and you just keep doing it. I think most people resist rewriting. It's always the hope, this one is the one, this one is the one, but this one isn't the one. It's about 20 down the line. But if you can learn to love that and learn to jump into that and swim in that and love the idea of writing on your pages and then typing them up and then printing that out and looking at that in you and doing it like, obviously the, the further you get into the work, the less problems that it has, the less you have to do. And, you, and, the, and the quicker you can rewrite, but the, but the I find the, the first draft, most people find the first draft of something where you're being very creative, the, the most joyous part of it, because the toughest part is plotting. That's, that's where everyone is rendered equal. Plotting is hard for anyone. Making up stories is really, really tough. Writing of stories is quite joyous, but I find re rewriting much more joyous. It's like returning to the canvas and looking and saying, that's not that, I'll take this out and I'll add this in, I'll go away and I'll come back tomorrow and I'll go, that was good, but it's presented a problem here. And that is the process. And the process of every artist, sculptors, painters, directors, you know you, 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 you go through a scene and then you look at it and you go, that was a mistake and that was a mistake and that was, do you know what I mean? And so you go back over it again and it's the act of doing it over and over that, that creates the piece. So the answer to the question, I suppose, in, is in doing that, the exercise of doing that, it becomes very clear what's right and what's wrong. But you've got to resist the, 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 the impulse to, to have it be right on this draft because it's never right in this draft. I tell you something else, it's never right ever. It's <laughs> uh, one more question there or not? Yes, up there. This is me being cheeky. Because um, you've been talking as, as the writer, Mark, but Annabelle introduced you by saying you've just come from rehearsals up the road 
with Juno, yeah. and we started the day with Jackie Irvin, and since this is the end of the day, and she was reading about the women of 1916 and thereafter in her novel, so I just wanted to say, how's Mary, um, in that you're working with Juno. So I know we're at the end of the day, so it's just a quick thing, but how is that directing something like that now? Um, and you probably can't tell us about the production till it's on, but seriously, how's Mary? Mary. Mary. Are you doing Junior on the paper? Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, Mary's here, I think, is she? Shove the back there. That's the Quiva O'Malley who's playing Mary. Uh, no, how's Mary? I don't know. You're great, Quiva, but how's Mary? <laughs> she, she's good. Um, what I love about the play, I mean, you'll get me started now, but I'll. Uh, it's. Um, O'Casey, oh, the older I get, the, the thing that gives me the most joy in theatre is contradictions. It's the, it, and it's the one thing that I find separates theatre from film or television. Film or television, the idea is to condense something and the narrative is kind of above all. That, that's the most important thing. What's great about theatre is that you can have moments and themes and sections of stories that are telling you two things at once and where you have to be very, very actively decide what part of it you agree with or don't and showing that the world isn't simple, that the world is very complex and that we're all kind of trying to make sense of it. And it surprised me how complex a play uh, Juno and the Paycock is and how, how tough it is on the characters. I won't say unforgiving, but how if you look at Juno and the Paycock in a, in a, in a very broad sense, it looks like the, the characters are, are more or less broadly delineated, but the deeper you look into it, the, the same sort of mistakes of, of getting ideas above your station, I know it's a slightly obvious one, or selfishness, or the idea of rejecting people when you feel you have something of value, or just the idea of feeling you're worth more than others. Uh, at one point or another in the play, everyone kind of goes through that and has to deal with that, you know. And literally today we were working on Mary's poem, you know, the, the, the poem at the end. And we were, we, you know, we were considering the meaning of it and I think the meaning is very close to, the, to what the play is talking about. And it's the, it's, the, it's the idea that, you know, even in the most beautiful things, there's an, there's an element of corruption or an element of darkness that can, I guess, grow unless we kind of keep it in check and with some of us some of us have allowed it to grow and some of us ha haven't but that there's nobody and nothing that doesn't have it which which all feels very profound to me and and and, and trickles back into almost every part of the play slightly long-winded answer i think it's uh, amazing amazing play i'm loving uh, working on it uh, and mary's fine yeah she's grand she'll be fine she her you know baby will have two mothers you know I just want to say thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Thanks for it.